0: Welcome to the fourth episode of the Big Screen Batman series, hosted through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. When we spoke last month, we spoke about the 1966 Batman the Movie with Adam West and Burt Ward. Now, it would take about 20 years before Batman made it back to the big screen. There were attempts to get him back to the screen in between, including one version that was scripted by Tom Mankiewicz, who had scripted the first couple of Superman movies with Richard Donner and Christopher Reeve. But Batman's presence as far as the pop culture is concerned. He was in the comics, there was still some merchandising like Mego toys and such, but as far as stories outside the comics were concerned, there was basically Super Friends. And in fact, in October 1985, in the final season of Super Friends, when it was the superpowers team Galactic Guardians, we finally got the first adaptation of Batman's origin story. The episode was titled The Fear. It was the fourth episode in the run, and it was a little bit truncated because the Stands and Practices... Rules for Saturday morning cartoons wouldn't allow guns. So standards and practices are the official members of the network who decide what goes on the air at what time of day. Are things approved in this form? Are they not? In this case, guns were out. For the target audience, you could not show a weapon. So the way they kind of work around that is with some creative editing. So Bruce and his parents went go into an alley. They are attacked by an apparently unarmed mugger, at least he appears unarmed at first. You know, when he's attacking Thomas and Martha Wayne, they cut to a shot of young Bruce saying, look out, he's got a... And then before you hear the word gun, before he draws the gun, you don't see it, it cuts immediately to a lightning strike. Following the lightning and thunder, it cuts back to a young Bruce crying in front of two gravestones. So it's pretty clear what's happened in between, even though they don't use the word gun. And then we actually get the full thought process, as he says, this is the point where I decided... This kind of tragedy was not going to happen to any other child. I started doing criminology research. I started learning how to be a detective. I started doing this. They've got the bat coming in the window. They've got the cowardly and superstitious lot line. So this puts all of Batman's origin together in a nice, neat package in the Super Friends. That hadn't made it to the screen, at least not in live action up to this point. When it finally did come to the screen, it had some sort of unlikely suspects in terms of who was behind it you could argue that the major contributors to any film, aside from the stars, are going to be your director and screenwriter, or directors and screenwriters, depending on the situation. Multiple screenwriters is much more common than multiple directors. This had that. It was directed by Tim Burton, who had directed a grand total of two feature films before this. One was Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the other was Beetlejuice. Both had done well, especially with younger audiences. We had Sam Hamm, who had experience writing the comics. This was only his second movie script, even though he would go on to write a lot more for movie and TV. But his previous script was actually part of a collaboration. He was one of several people involved in adapting Never Cry Wolf by Farley Mowat from novel to screen. His script was rewritten by William Scarren, who had previously written Fire with Fire, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Beetlejuice. So Batman was his fourth and final movie script. He actually died in 1990 at age 44. So your core creative team weren't terribly experienced. And even then, if you look at Tim Burton and William Scarran, the fact that they are common ground in Beetlejuice is their most recent work also tells you that they're not only lacking experience, they could be lacking unique experience. Now, the rest of the production crew, when you go through them, they may not have been named Draws, but they were definitely experienced individuals. The music was composed by Danny Elfman, and he'd been a member of the pop rock group Oingo Boingo, But he also composed for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the Sledgehammer TV series, the Simpsons TV series, the Flash TV series, Pure Luck, Forbidden Zone, The New Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Back to School, Summer School, Midnight Run, Big Top Pee-wee, Hot to Trot, Scrooged, He was definitely established as a composer at this point in time. We have Roger Pratt as director of photography, who had done Brazil and several other movies. Ray Lovejoy was the editor, whose editing credits go back to his very first credit as an editor on 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then a number of other films in between 1968 and 1989. Marion Doherty was the casting director, whose credits go back to 1960, including Lady Hawk, Clean and Sober, Lethal Weapon, Funny Farm, Lost Boys, European Vacation, Man with Two Brains, World According to Garp, and A Pile of Others. Anton First was the production designer. This is his ninth credit out of 10 total credits. He had done a number of movies. Full Metal Jacket is the one that stands out to me, but that could also be because I'm a huge Kubrick fan. Bob Ringwood was the costume designer, going back to Excalibur, Doom, Santa Claus, Solar Babies, Empire of the Sun, and a lot more following this movie. So he's the one that came up with different materials for the costume, decided which rubber to use, decided how to make Batman's capes, Yes, that's plural. They had 44 different capes in the production of this movie so that you know, they had replacements if they got torn, and they were often made out of different material so that they would billow more in one scene and billow less in another and so forth. Now, Nick Dudman was in charge of the Joker makeup. His credits went back to Empire Strikes Back in 1980. He'd also worked on Superman 2, Krull, Return of the Jedi, Supergirl, Legend, Young Sherlock, Holmes, Labyrinth, Willow, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and others as well. So these guys knew what they were doing. For the filming location, they chose to film it in England, and most of it was in a closed set. So this Gotham City was created from scratch using models and sets that were built in Pinewood Studios, which was also used for part of the filming of the 1978 Superman film. But when this was coming out in 1989, the general public didn't have as much access to behind-the-scenes information as we do now. There wasn't a lot that you'd know about what was going on on set. You didn't have people with cameras in their mobile phones who could just upload things online. There were still actual legitimate film cameras. You had to get them developed and then had to somehow get them published. The internet existed and has since the 60s, but it was not the beast it was today. The World Wide Web was developed by Tim Berners-Lee in 1991. So I'm talking about 1988, 1989. The people who were on the internet weren't really using it to share leaked media about these movies, especially since so many of them would have been on dial-up. So the first two casting announcements that came through were Jack Nicholson as the Joker, which was a bit of a back and forth. They first approached Jack Nicholson as the Joker because, I mean, he's Jack Nicholson who would do a better Joker than him, right? He was reluctant at first, so they offered the part to Robin Williams who accepted it and then turned around to Nicholson and said, okay, if you don't do this, Robin Williams is going to, and then Nicholson signed. So we'll come back to that with Robin Williams later, not in this podcast, but a later podcast. As far as Jack Nicholson's concerned, he also had a pretty innovative contract. He had been paid pretty well for One Fruit Over the Cuckoo's Nest when he first signed to get a percentage of the gross of the film. Batman is one of the last times an actor was able to sign for a percentage of the gross rather than a percentage of the profits. In this case, Jack Nicholson ended up as the highest paid actor in history, and he still holds that record to this day. When you include his share of the profits, he ended up taking home 60 million dollars from this movie. So not at all a bad day's work or a bad eight to 12 weeks of work, depending on how much of that shooting schedule he was there for. The other major early announcement was Michael Keaton as Batman. That did not go over well with the general public. If you think Ben Affleck is getting flack for being cast as Batman, he's got nothing on what they did for Michael Keaton. At this point in Michael Keaton's career, clean and sober was really the only drama he had done. Pretty much everything else on his resume was a comedy, and by far the most successful films on his resume were comedies. Most people saw him as Mr. Mom. Now, naturally, he'd already been Beetlejuice and Johnny Dangerously and other characters as well, but Mr. Mom was the role that was giving him flack in this, because that's a character so far removed from Batman that basically it does not show he can play Batman. Turns out he played the version of Batman that Tim Burton was filming very well, but that didn't come out. There was a lot of flack and a lot of fear from the community, including a very scathing Variety report that you can find online now. It's been posted. Basically, Variety, which is probably the most reliable insider news for entertainment, was saying, okay, if they've cast Michael Keaton, then clearly they are taking this movie in the same direction that they took Batman in the 60s. It's going to be campy. It's going to be comedic. It's going to be terrible. And just tore into it and how wrong the casting was. Again, having no idea with Tim Burton and his team had in mind. They brought in Kim Basinger as Vicki Vale, who we have spoken about before. Vicki Vale was a longtime love interest in the comics, red-haired in the comics because of a coloring error. She was intended to be blonde. We've got Robert Wool as Alexander Knox, which is an original character for this movie. And Wool, he's not terribly well-known As an actor, he's recognizable. He's gotten a lot of work. But if you look him up on the Internet Movie Database, he's worked in pretty much every film production department there is. So sometimes he's an actor, sometimes a writer, sometimes director, sometimes composer. He is a jack-of-all-trades which means he's got a lot of experience and skill behind him, not a lot of notoriety as far as the general public is concerned. We've got Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon, who was an experienced character actor, but again, not really a standout role, especially in this point in his career. We've got Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent, probably best known as Lando Calrissian in the Star Wars movies, at least at this time, even though that's not what he got his reputation built on. And as Harvey Dent, he actually had a clause in his contract that guaranteed him he would play Two-Face, When that villain came up. Now, Michael Gough was in here as Alfred Pennyworth, and at this point he was best known to North American audiences for his work in the Hammer horror films. He was a classic British actor. He was a villain in three different serials of Doctor Who as three different villains. He had a long career behind him as well, and actually quite liked him as Alfred. We've got film legend Jack Palance as Carl Grissom. If you listen to the commentary, there's a moment where one of the first scenes that they were filming, Tim Burton was trying to give Jack Palance direction, and Jack Palance basically ignored everything he said, responded only with, I've made over a hundred films in my career. How many have you made? And they did everything the way he wanted to anyway. And some of that shows. There's some scenes with Jack Palance I'm not terribly thrilled with, especially his delivery with that, you are my number one guy moment. That was just... That was just out of place. We've got a model named Jerry Hall as Alicia Hunt. She's got some acting work since then. Here, she's basically the trophy wife. She's the the model that the Joker does some of his first homicidal artist work with. It's not a terribly demanding role, but she does it well. She doesn't really stand out at any point in time, but neither does she drive us out of the film by looking like she's acting. She just does what she needs to do. We've got Tracy Walter. He was a working actor who was hired here because he's a good friend with Jack Nicholson. And that was one of the other conditions that Nicholson had was, okay, I will play the Joker if you give my buddy this role as Bob the Goon. I knew him before this from a one-shot role in WKRP, the episode The Contest Nobody Could Win. He's the guy who really won the contest, who only shows up at the very end. We've got experienced actor Lee Wallace as the mayor. Look him up on the IMDb. Number of guest spots in TV series we've all heard of, but none of the guest spots really stood out to me. And we also have William Hootkins as Lieutenant Eckhart, who's probably, well, I found him almost unrecognizable here, but a lot of people will know him because he's done a lot of work, especially in genre films. He was Porkins in the Star Wars movies. He was Munson in Flash Gordon, Major Eaton in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harry Howler in Superman 4, pile of other jobs, and he worked right up to his death in 2005 at age 57. Even after all the rest of the supporting cast had been announced, people were still concerned about having Michael Keaton in that lead role. Then they released the first trailer, and all the complainers just kind of stopped complaining. Because it was very, very clear from that first trailer, this was not going to be campy. This is not putting comedy first. This is actually a fairly dark version. And when you've got Michael Keaton in that rubber suit, he looks pretty tough. And in fact, one of the reasons that Tim Burton went along with casting Michael Keaton is because Keaton is not a big guy. Burton felt, if Batman is a guy who looks like Michael Keaton, that explains why he dresses up as a bat, because he's not going to be scaring anybody just by being himself. He needed that extra edge. Then came June 23rd, 1989, and the movie actually hit. And it hit big. It made the record for the highest opening weekend box office to that point. And it held that record for a few years, only to be bumped by Batman Returns, which was then bumped down to second place by Jurassic Park, which was then bumped itself by Batman Forever. So the first three of these Batman movies just kept escalating in terms of opening weekend box office. And every one of them, of those first three, made that record. In fact, this first Batman held the total box office record for a few years as in terms of a single-issue release. E.T., the extraterrestrial, still had a higher total box office, but that was in two runs because E.T. had been released in 1982, and then was re-released a couple of years later, because home video really wasn't a huge factor at the time. So Batman did more than either of the individual E.T. releases, although it didn't make as much as E.T.'s two releases did combined. Now, this movie was a personally important movie to me. It came out just a couple of months before I turned 12. So at this time, I knew the names of John Williams, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas, but those are about the only non-actor names I could give you. Probably Alfred Hitchcock, too, but that's really it. I could name most of the stars, like I could name Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, I could name the main stars in Star Wars. I couldn't tell you who wrote the Indiana Jones movies. I couldn't tell you who was doing most of the music if it wasn't John Williams. I didn't know, and in fact, I pretty much assumed that all the good music was John Williams because let's face it, I grew up in the era with Superman and Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I mean these are the ones that were really blowing everyone away Now, I distinctly remember. Sitting in that theater, watching Batman as it came up, seeing that opening credit sequence where the camera's moving within the bat symbol, and hearing that incredible score that had the right amount of darkness to it, and that right tone, and thinking this is amazing. And then seeing the name Danny Elfman show up instead of John Williams. That blew me away. I had no idea who this guy was. And like I said at this point, I was pretty much just assuming if it's good, it's John Williams. And that's about it. So that moment is the moment I started actually paying attention to the credits. Before that, I would read the words because they're words in front of me, but nothing really clicked or registered. Not until I saw that. Now, if you've been listening to this series since it was Silver Screen Superman, you might know at this point, I'd already started to obsess a little bit over visual effects, like figuring out how they did the balcony scene in Superman. I hadn't done that with anything else. And this is the movie where I really started to go through it. Just because of that credit and because of that music, I started going through this one shot by shot and scene by scene to figure out how movies are put together from start to finish. When this came out on VHS, this was the one where I not only asked for it for Christmas, but it was very specific that in 1990, I wanted my parents to track down the widescreen version of this VHS tape. That could not have been an easy thing to do, but I will give them credit and greatly appreciate the fact that they pulled it off, and they found that widescreen copy for me, and I was watching it over and over. Now, by the time it actually came out on video, I was in grade eight, and I was doing drama just for fun. I only did it the one year, not because I didn't enjoy it, just because I did different options every year, and I remember them talking about facial expressions and how you can use that as part of the acting. So I came back and I looked at this movie, because this is a movie I new inside out to see exactly how they're using facial expressions to drive things. And that's when I noticed something in Jack Nicholson's performance that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about since, and I think it is very much worth noting. The makeup that they had on the Joker was surprisingly limited. So what they really did was they just drew Jack Nicholson's lips to be much wider than they actually were and put appliances to be the ends of the smile on his cheeks. So his actual mouth is only about half of the mouth that you see on screen. A lot of people notice that, but it's not until you're putting conscious thought into facial expressions and how it works, and I was feeling my own face while I was talking and thinking about it, that I realized Jack Nicholson really couldn't emote with the bottom half of his face. If he did anything to pucker the corners of his lips while he was speaking, while he was laughing, while he was reacting in shock, anything that would show where the corners of his lips are, He would destroy the illusion on that makeup. Meanwhile, his eyes and his eyebrows and his forehead were going nuts because he's playing a psycho who's very exaggerated, and it's all there. So the bottom half of his face was incredibly still and stoic, while the top half was going all over the place. That takes an incredible amount of conscious control while hitting your marks, while remembering your lines, while interacting with the other actors around you. It's a very difficult thing to do, and he nailed it. A lot of people will praise his work in here, and he did a great job, but a lot of people, I don't think, realize how much of a challenge there was because of that makeup, and it's something that I still am surprised at to this day. Some 25 years later, I'm still pretty impressed that he was able to pull that off through almost the entirety of filming, and it it was a conscious choice on his part. If you go back and look at the scenes where he is Jack Napier before he becomes the Joker, And incidentally, this is really the only time we get the Joker's origin. It's not even covered in the comics. He doesn't really have a definitive origin. There's some parts implied towards it in the killing joke, but we don't get a lot of it. But in here, yeah, he emotes just completely normally with the bottom half of his face while he's Jack Napier. It's not until he becomes the Joker that that changes. Michael Keaton also did pretty well with his interpretation of the character. He was the first really dark major superhero film. It wasn't without some comedy, but most of that comedy was twisted and a lot of it was coming from the Joker. So it's the first live-action interpretation of Batman's origin, even though it's not really complete. You know his parents are killed, but this doesn't even attempt to track the thought process from watching his parents die to becoming Batman. You know that it happens, but I know people who don't know the full backstory, who watched this movie and they were confused by the ending when he's saying, when Batman is telling the Joker, I made you, you made me first. So they knew that, at this point, Jack and Napier killed his parents. They didn't understand how that turned him into Batman, because that's really not covered. We get some allusions to it in the first crime that we see. Again, it's a family getting mugged in the alley. Why the mugging happens, I don't know, because we know Batman sees it beforehand, and then he comes to beat up the muggers on the roof afterwards, but doesn't intervene when they're actually mugging the family. That doesn't quite sit right with me. There's a few things that don't quite sit right with me. You know, we've got... Bruce Wayne wearing glasses, which I understand is an important prop for the actor to work with. You, know, you can fiddle with them, chew the corner, it shows that the wheels are turning and you're thinking in a way that isn't really necessary on the comic page where you could just do one big splash and have a bunch of narrated thought balloons. That doesn't work here. So yeah, this Batman wears glasses, which bugs me because that would never happen in the comics. In the comics, Batman is the perfect physical specimen. It's just his psychology that's messed up. So we've got a Batman who is ready, willing, and perfectly able to kill. For example, he kills virtually every employee in Ace Chemicals. Granted, they're clearly bad guys because they're all armed and shooting at the Batmobile, but he sends the Batmobile in to blow the place up and oh darn it, he missed the Joker, he's going to have to try again. We get other things in here that you wouldn't really expect in a Batman movie and definitely not in a PG movie, such as the implications of what we see on screen after Kim Basinger delivers the I love purple line near the end. But beyond that, this is a major landmark in superhero movie making. It defined Batman for a generation. It launched video games for the NES and the Super Nintendo, and probably the Genesis and Master Systems, too. I was a Nintendo guy. It launched the the Bruce Timm cartoon. Even though they were doing their own take on Batman, without the success of this movie, that Batman project wouldn't have been there. They even used the Danny Elfman score for it. It came through the sequels. And in the next eight years, we were getting four Batman movies, so they weren't really holding back on the sequels. They were cranking them out. And that score, it's still known today. It's even showing up in the 2013 Michael Batman video game. It is very distinctive. And in terms of the look, when they built the city in the Pinewood Studios, we see a lot of the German Expressionist influence on Tim Burton. Now, the German Expressionist movement is not one that's terribly well-known today. It had a huge impact on films when it first came out, you know, around 1918, 1919, and was prevalent primarily in the next 10 to 15 years. But we still see elements of that down the road, especially in the works of Tim Burton. Now, he says it's not something he consciously puts in, it's just he saw those movies and they they made their mark. That sort of influenced him. So, you know, when he was making Edward Scissorhands, he didn't consciously say, I'm going to reproduce this village from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It just had so much influence on him, he built something similar, because that's the way his mind is now processing visual images. So it's almost a subconscious homage. It's just a huge influence on all of Burton's work. This is the first time it really starts showing up on the screen in terms of using the set itself to convey emotions, right? Using the darkness in the bat cave. Even if you look at the little things in Wayne Manor, during the dinner scene, you can actually see an upside down bat carved into the shape on the top of one of the bookshelves when they're eating in that very large dining room, right? The The scene where they move to the kitchen afterwards to finish eating is one of the more brightly lit scenes in the movie. A lot of the shadows are as much a part of the set and the visual look as the set itself is. So it's not just what you see, it's what you can't see. What parts are obscured? How much of the screen is obscured? What color are the buildings? So there's some moments where all the buildings and surroundings are very dark gray. There's some moments where they're lighter, where it's sort of this quasi-modern art deco feel. The props are as much a part of this movie as the actors and writers are. And that's one of the big signs of the German Expressionist movement. We'll talk about that more next month because it's even more prominent when we get to Batman Returns. And that's where we start having some very explicit references to German Expressionism. So please join us again next month for that discussion of Batman Returns. Thank you for listening.